millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. I'm Damon, and this is episode 58, The Prince, part 2. Thanks for listening in. Okay, so last time out we looked at how Peter the Great's second wife, Catherine, became Russia's first female head of state, and how Prince Alexander Menshikov, who'd been instrumental in enabling the Empress Consort to become the Empress of all the Russias, ended up running things and enriching himself so brazenly, with Catherine's help it has to be said, that when things finally went too far, the Empress put in place in February 1726 the Supreme Privy Council. So this week we'll be taking a closer look at the council, the rationale for setting it up, the individual councillors, the council's aims, and whether or not those aims were met. Plus, we'll get to see how Russia and Great Britain almost came to blows, and how the non-royal Prince Menshikov managed to get his daughter, Maria, engaged to a member of the established imperial family. Before we kick off this week, there are a couple, well, three specific items that I wanted to quickly mention. And the first is to welcome the following Patreon subscribers to the Boyar Duma. William Courtney... Lance Dunlop, Kelly Weiner-Smith, Eric Shepard, Neil MacDonald, Austin Hillock and Ben O'Brien. Thanks so much, guys. I really do appreciate your support and hopefully over the coming weeks, months and years, you'll be enjoying the members-only episodes, the transcripts, the early release of the mainstream episodes and coming soon, a new feature where Boyar Duma members will get to pick the subject for a specific episode. Now, if you want to join them, and this week has seen the release of the first members-only episode all about the current situation regarding the war in Ukraine, then just pop along to the podcast website. 
historyofrussia.net and just click on the membership page or the Patreon logo on the homepage. Or you could go directly to Patreon and that's at patreon.com forward stroke history of Russia. Or you could always download the app. Uh, just search for Patreon in either the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store. And then secondly, a number of you have been in touch asking about the books and sources that I use or have used for the podcast. So, in no particular order, here you go. So there's the Chronicle of the Russian Tsars uh, by David Warnes, and that is a very good high-level history. Kind of book that if you didn't know anything about Russia or the Tsars, then that would be a good place to start. Specifically good for Ukrainian history is The Gates of Europe by Serhai Piochi. And don't worry either about my pronunciation or, or the spelling. I'll, I'll put these up in the episode notes. Then there's Russia, A History by Gregory L. Fries. Russia and the Russians by Geoffrey Hosking, and both of those are, are good, concise histories. As is, and it's just termed Russia by Martin Sixsmith. And then there's the Cambridge History of Russia, Volume 1, from the Early Rus to 1689, which is very detailed and a bit on the heavy side. And then for the more recent episodes, I've been plowing my way through Peter the Great by Robert Massey, The Romanovs by Simon Seabag Montefiore. And both of those have got a lot of great information in, and they're a very good read as well. And then I've just got hold of a book called The Longman Companion to Imperial Russia, 1689 to 1917, by David Longley. Now, this isn't the kind of book you could sort of read through from beginning to end. It's full of facts, some of which the other books just don't have, but it's more of a reference guide or companion. I guess that's why it's called The Longman Companion. And now, then soon I'll be delving into Catherine the Great, which is also by Robert Massey. Oh, and of course, there's Wikipedia and Encyclopedia Britannica. But as I said, I'll drop the full list in the episode show notes. And just before we start, I just need to make a couple of corrections to a couple of things that I said in the last episode. Now, English is a language that I've spoken for most of my life. In fact, for the first, well, obviously for the first couple of years I didn't, but for the rest of my life I did. But in last week's episode I managed to invent a completely new way to say spontaneous, which was spontaneous. Never said that before in my life, don't know why I said it then, but anyway, it, I know it should be spontaneous. Plus I invented a completely new word, bravely. Instead of, instead of saying just bravely. So I'm not really sure what happened, but isn't it nice to know that no one, not even me, is infallible. Okay, enough faff. If everyone's ready, let's do some history of Russia. So the Supreme Privy Council was an advisory body that was set up by Catherine to A. 
curb Menchikov's ambition, b. Placate the other senior players and allow them to have their say, and c. Hopefully run the empire in a more professional way. That was, or they were, the rationale and aims, and I'm sure that in one part of her mind, Catherine was convinced that she was doing the right thing, and that she convinced everyone else that she was doing the right thing. In another part of her brain, though, she was possibly fearing for the worst, or humming quietly to herself. The initial members of the council, and there were six of them, were Prince Menshikov and Pyotr Tolstoy, who we've met, and four others who we either haven't met or haven't mentioned in a while. And so they were Dmitry Golitsyn, who'd commanded troops in the Great Northern War, and since Peter the Great's death had been recognised as the leader of the conservative aristocratic faction. Then we had Fyodor Apraxin, who was the brother of Marfa Apraxina, who'd been one of Fyodor III's wives, and had been around for donkey's years, serving mainly as an admiral under Peter the Great, and he now commanded Catherine's Baltic fleet. Apraxin had also been involved in Tsarevich Alexei's downfall, and he was Tolstoy's ally. Another of Peter's old guard was Gavril Golovkin. He had accompanied the Tsar to Europe as part of the Grand Embassy, and since 1706 had been nominally in charge of Russia's foreign affairs, even though he spoke no other languages and had never really got to grips with the subtleties of foreign diplomacy. Golovkin was also known for being incredibly rich, although he wasn't in Menchikov's league, and incredibly miserly. And then finally, there was the wily, hard-working and highly intelligent André Osterman, or to give him his full name, Heinrich Johann Friedrich Osterman. Born in Westphalia, in the Holy Roman Empire, Osterman, who spoke six languages, had come to Peter the Great's attention during the mid to latter stages of the Great Northern War, where he'd originally served as a secretary to one of Peter's admirals, before moving on to become a specialist in Russian foreign affairs and treaty negotiations, where he did most of the work that Golovkin either couldn't or wouldn't do. By the early 1720s, he'd become fully Russianized, and he'd spent time assisting Peter with his domestic reforms, most notably the introduction of the revised Table of Ranks. So that was the makeup of Catherine's advisory council. But note, though, that the other important the aristocratic family in the mix, the Dolgorukis, didn't get a place at the council table, and that left poor old Dmitry Golitsyn as the only member of the conservative Russian aristocracy to battle it out against Prince Menshikov and the four other new men. And so I think it's worth asking, what was the point of the council? Because... Whatever her intentions, Catherine must have known that Menshikov, who still enjoyed the Empress's favour, would continue to dominate affairs. And he did, for three reasons. One, because everyone knew the rules of the game, and no one was stupid or brave enough to stand up to the prince. Two, Catherine wasn't there to keep an eye on things. She very quickly stopped attending the meetings, and was soon fully re-immersed back into her life of twilight parties and revelling. And then three, Menshikov's character and persona. 
He was just more powerful, more experienced, more adept and more astute than the others, except maybe for Osterman, who quietly, cleverly and efficiently got on with most of the council's heavy lifting. And so as an experiment in governance, the introduction of the Supreme Privy Council, whilst well-intentioned, appears to have been an exercise in window dressing, and for the time being, things would carry on pretty much as they had before. There was, however, one significant reform that the Empress was able to get through, and that was a reduction in military spending, which at the time was consuming over 50% of Russia's overall expenditure. Luckily for Catherine and Russia, though, 1726 would turn out to be pretty quiet, and there'd be nothing too onerous for the councillors to worry about, apart from their own positions, of course. However, and you must have known that was coming, in the late spring, word reached the council that the King of Great Britain, George I no less, was attempting to set up a blockade of the Baltic, which was true, he was, and that the British ships were sailing towards St. Petersburg to bombard the city, which actually wasn't true. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So how did this situation come about? Well, for a number of years now, since the end of the Great Northern War, in fact, George and his ministers have been worried about Russia's growing influence in the Baltic and the German states and in particular, the potential knock-on to impact to the trade in timber and tar, which Britain, as a rapidly growing naval power, could ill afford to be without. Anyway, Catherine panicked and started making noises about commanding the navy herself. The prince, however, placated the empress by stating that he would go up to Courland and sort things out. As usual, though, Menchikov had an ulterior motive for heading north, a land grab. Well, not so much a land grab, more of a province grab. Courland, located in western modern-day Latvia, was in 1726 nominally part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. But for almost a couple of centuries, the duchy had operated autonomously and more recently had fallen under St. Petersburg's influence. And the current duke wasn't a duke at all. In charge, again nominally, was the 33-year-old Duchess Anna Ivanovna, the middle surviving daughter of poor old Tsar Ivan V. And she'd been running things since the death of her husband, Frederick William, in 1711. 
Now, we'll be covering Anna Ivanovna in more detail in a future episode, as she'll soon be playing a bigger part in her story. But for the time being, running things in Courland was keeping her fully occupied, even though she spent most of her time doing very little, apart from partying and involving herself in numerous affairs and relationships. The prince, using the British blockade as an excuse, hurried up to Courland and crudely attempted to wrest control from Anna and her entourage and establish himself as the new duke. However, this time he'd gone too far, even for Catherine. The Courlanders revolted, and seeing as the British threat failed to materialise, Tolstoy, the now 80-year-old voice of reason, advised the empress to recall Menshikov, and by early summer he was back in Petersburg in a kind of bearable semi-disgrace. But you can't keep a good man down for long, and later that summer Menshikov was back to have another go at what he usually did best, taking advantage of a situation and manipulating events for his own gain. So what was this latest situation? Well, in late 1726, Catherine's dissolute lifestyle was starting to take its toll. Now aged 52, her health was going downhill, and the Empress was struggling with asthma, nosebleeds and swollen limbs, which meant that she was having to spend more and more of her time indisposed in her sickbed. Nothing too serious, but nevertheless worrying signs. This, of course, meant that anyone who was anyone in St. Petersburg society, including the Privy Councillors, was gossiping and speculating about how long Catherine had left, and more importantly, who would succeed her. And two favourites had emerged from the pack. Some favoured Catherine's eldest daughter, the now 18-year-old Anna Petrovna, whilst others, including the old guard, and surprisingly the prince, favoured the 11-year-old Peter, son of the murdered Alexei and grandson of Peter the Great and Eudoxia. Seemingly out of the running were young Peter's elder sister Natalia, Catherine's youngest daughter, Elizaveta or Elizabeth, and all three of Ivan V's daughters, Ekaterina, Anna and Praskovia. So why did Menshikov want the 11-year-old Peter to become the next emperor? You would have thought that he would have been happier with Catherine, Catherine's daughter Anna at the helm. Well, Peter was young and could be easily controlled, but the main reason was that the prince had hatched a plan to eventually marry Peter to his 16-year-old daughter Maria Menshikova. And there was one problem, though. Maria was already engaged. And so Menshikov had to come up with a creative solution. Now, he knew that Catherine had taken a fancy to Maria's dashing young fiancé, the Lithuanian prince Sapieha, and so he told the empress that all was not well between the young couple and effectively gave Catherine the green light to steal the Lithuanian prince away from his own daughter. In return, Menshikov got the go-ahead from the empress to arrange the engagement of Maria to the young Peter Alexeyevich. Now, all of that sounds a bit farcical and contrived, but could, perhaps with a stretch of the imagination, be viewed as a valid account of what transpired. I mean, stranger things have happened. Tolstoy, 
who, as we know, was not a fan of young Peter being anywhere near the throne, got Anna and Elisaveta to try and change their mother's mind. But he was too late. And what's more, he'd made a serious mistake, because Menshikov somehow found out. In November 1726, Catherine took a turn for the worse, and though she made a slight recovery, it was agreed that while she was ill, the prince would be in day-to-day -day control of the empire. By the April of 1727, it was clear to Menshikov that Catherine wasn't going to recover. What had also become clear was that Tolstoy was trying to put together a group of like-minded souls who all wanted Catherine's eldest daughter, Anna, to be the next empress. And so the prince decided to act. In early May, he brought evidence to the ailing Catherine that Tolstoy was at the head of a conspiracy against her. And on the 17th of May, the old man, he's now 81, and his family were exiled to a remote monastery on the Solovetsky Islands in the White Sea, from where he would never return. And later, the same day, after a short reign of only two years and three months, Catherine died, and Peter the Great's grandson was proclaimed as Peter II, Emperor of all the Russias, and for company, and his well-being, of course. He had the prince and the prince's daughter. So, what are we to make of the life of Marta Helena Skovronska, a.k.a. Marta Samuelovna Skavronskaya, a.k.a. Yekaterina, a.k.a. Catherine I? Well, let's look at the good first. I always think it's best to start with the good, and I also think that in Catherine's case, the positives will outweigh the negatives. But let's see. She was the first woman to have ever ruled the Russian state in her own right. And as we know, she rose to these dizzy heights from the most obscure of beginnings, being the daughter of either Polish or Latvian farmers or peasants. She had to deal with and put up with two of the most powerful, difficult, and certainly for one of them, unpredictable men of the times, Peter the Great and Prince Menshikov, which she did, in the main, by seemingly just being herself and being loyal and kind, well, most of the time. And she did this in the most testing, unstable and sometimes downright dangerous of times because during her lifetime Russia was mostly at war and was going through the growing pains of rapidly transforming itself into a European power. She tried her hardest to provide her husband and Russia with an heir, giving birth twelve times, but with only two of the children, Anna and Elizaveta, surviving through to adulthood. And when she finally became empress, and un unlike her predecessors, she did something tangible for the vast mass of the Russian poor by reducing the tax burden, plus she managed to implement her military cost-cutting reforms. And I di didn't mention this, but upon Peter's death, Catherine searched for, and managed to find, her four brothers and sisters, Christina, Anna, Carol and Friedrich, and gave them the newly created titles of Count and Countess and brought them back, or brought them to Russia. Oh, and one last thing, um, not necessarily a plus point, but interesting nevertheless, Russia's fourth largest city, Yekaterinburg, is named after her. On the minor side, she wasn't the greatest ruler or administrator, 
and she was too easily dominated by her ministers, and in the end her way of dealing with matters was really just to leave them to it. Now I mentioned loyalty a minute ago, but there was the strange episode with Villain Mons, which, whilst out of character and if true, does show a more devious or naive side. And as for Menchikov, well, he seems to have had some kind of strange hold over her that she just either couldn't or wouldn't escape from. And her treatment when Empress of Peter the Great's first wife was unnecessary and cruel, and I believe it was very much driven by either jealousy or spite, although perhaps it was out of loyalty to the memory of her husband. Now having said that, Eudoxia was, in May 1727, still very much alive. So weighing things up, and in the end then, not bad, Catherine. Not bad at all. OK, we're going to leave it there this week. Next time we'll be checking in on how young Peter II was getting on under the protective wing of Prince Menchikov, and we'll be seeing how, for one of them, the new reign wouldn't necessarily end up going to plan. Anyway, until then, look after yourselves, stay safe, continue to smile through gritted teeth if you have to, and I'll be back with you soon for some more History of Russia. <laughs>